0: And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. We welcome you to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you could join us. Today, we continue to plumb the depths of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And we see that we are Christ's little lambs. Yes, little lambs set apart for God's possession and use. And now,
1: with this message for today... Pastor Robert Elliott. In the first place, these original readers were Roman citizens. Their earthly status was a coveted status in the ancient world. They were Roman citizens. It had great privileges. When they were going to beat Paul, he played the Roman citizen card and they backed off. Maybe an equivalent to Roman citizenship as an earthly status that's preferred as American citizenship these days. When you're an American citizen, you have an earthly status that many people in the world would like to have for the doors it opens of opportunity. These first readers were Romans. They had an earthly status, but they didn't just have an earthly status. They also were loved by God. They had a tender relationship with God that had been forged at great price by the son of God shed blood. The Good Shepherd was not just a theoretical concept to them when they believed the gospel. He became the believer's individual Good Shepherd. I love this picture because there's one lammy in the Good Shepherd's arms. And if you picture yourself as being the one and only lamb in Jesus' arms, you would be right when understanding his tenderness, his attentiveness, his protectiveness, his provision, his forgiveness that he has for you as his little lammy, if you're saved. And so these original readers on an earthly status level were Roman citizens, but on a more important level, they'd come into a relationship with the good shepherd, the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Have you? They weren't just people who had an earthly status of Roman citizen. They weren't just believers who had a relationship status with a good shepherd. They were also saints. They were also saints, says in um, the text. Saints are, that's our spiritual status. A saint is a redeemed, born-again believer in Jesus who is set apart for God's possession and use. That's the normal Christian life. If you've trusted Jesus to be your Savior, then God is sanctifying you. He is setting you apart from the world that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ of everything. He is setting you apart from sin. He is setting you apart from self for his own possession and use because you're no longer your own if you're saved. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, I glorify God in your body. A saint is the spiritual status that those first readers had. I mean, the marvelous miracle that they were once dead in trespass and sin, but they had been regenerated and made alive in Christ. That's your miracle if you're saved. You once were dead as a doorpost in trespass and sin, Ephesians 2.1. But God, in his grace and mercy and the finished work of his son, made you alive, gave you life where you once were dead. Why? So that he could set you apart from sin, self, and the world for his possession and use. My mother and father uh, love to entertain people. They always have. And it was a very common practice on the early afternoon or late afternoon of a day they were having company in for dinner to our house that my mother would set around the house in fancy dishes, Peanuts and mixed nuts and candies and all kinds of things I just loved. And there every turn in the house I walked was a dish of something I loved. And I knew they were set apart for the company's possession and use. And I think my mother took an inventory on each dish. Because I always got busted if I got into what was set apart for the company's possession and use. Now I should say after the company left, if they did need everything, them others said have at it. You've been set apart if you're saved. You've been set apart for God's possession and use. Don't mess with this world system that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ to everything. Don't mess with sin with its temporary pleasures. That's really a, a, a jail cell. Don't bow down to yourself as the boss of your life. If you know Christ as Savior, he's your Lord. He's setting you apart for his possession and use. Let him. The gospel is magnificent. It affects our earthly status. It affects our relationship status. It affects our spiritual status. We are saints. As I'm preaching to a crowd of this size, I know something. That although we all look to be fine, That in the eyes of heaven, we're all not fine. That some here this morning have never transferred their trust to the finished work of Jesus. They know the language of the church, but not the Lord of the church. The gospel is the wonderful message that's a screaming priority to this pastor and to this church, and I trust to all of you, that Christ has died for sins and arisen. That's the gospel. Have you acknowledged that Jesus died for your sins in your place as your substitute? And have you by faith acknowledged that he didn't stay dead and father raised them after dying to show that your sins are all paid for in full? If you've never made that confession to the Lord, you're not yet saved. And coming to this wonderful church building will no more make you to be a Christian than going to a garage will make you to be a car. This morning, I'm going to invite you in a moment to come to the front. to be people to pray with you. If you want to settle this issue and you want to trust Jesus and only Jesus to be your Savior from sin, I've been praying for you all week. I know something else in a group this size that believers, true believers, that some are not living under the lordship of Christ. That when we go through those doors, for some of us, we go into a week that we don't really let Jesus be the boss. And that reflects in the choices we make in our marriages, in our money, in our workplaces, in our parenting, in our free time. I'm going to give an opportunity to those that are saying, I want to live under the lordship of Christ. I'm a Christian, but I want to live under the lordship of Christ. I want to stop this This fiasco of thinking that I can say no to my Lord when, in fact, he is Lord. I'm going to give a chance for believers, truly born-again people, who have been trying to marry no with Lord to say, I quit. I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ, whatever it costs me, no matter what anybody else thinks. I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ. I'm going to stop Trying to say no to my Lord. Thanks, Pastor
0: Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers.
2: Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas. And today we want to start a series as we know that Christmas is right around the corner. And we want to start a series talking about the problem with Christmas. And I know that that title doesn't sound great for us who are believers and, you know, what could be the problem with Christmas? But the reality is, is that as we consider Christmas, there's a lot of things that come into play, a lot of things that get in the way of the true meaning of Christmas. And when we consider Christmas, I want you to think of your family. I want you to think of the traditions that you may have as a family, that you may um, do certain things during Christmas and that you may um, play board games, whatever you may do, you do in Christmas. I know one of the traditions of my family is on Christmas morning, we'll always wear some Christmas T-shirts that are... Uh, You know, you buy from a store. You know, these are things that we do. We also, you know, have a time to reflect on the birth of Christ. And, you know, these are just some things that my family does. I want you to think of those traditions that your family does. And when we consider even as we think of some of the most famous Christmas movies, um, people, you know, one of my traditions is I like to watch Home Alone. And, you know, it's amazing that when we consider, you know, just how we like to watch these certain movies, there are times when people can get on our last nerves when it comes to movies. Because if somebody walks into a movie and you've been watching it for the first half of the movie, then they come halfway through a movie, they start to ask you a lot of different questions. Well, why did this happen? What is why is this happening? Who is that? What is this? You know, and it gets on your nerves as you're watching a movie. And I think that one of the things when we consider Christmas is especially in the church, it comes to the point where we have to remember that there's going to come a time when we get to the point where we tell about the Christmas story. And some people may be wondering, well, why do we have to to hear the Christmas story every single year? Why do we need to, you know, we already know this. We already, you know, have seen this. And and, and we already talk about the virgin birth and, you know, it's all great and everything. But why do we have to hear this every single year? Well, like I said, going back to my illustration about how people come midway through the movie, I think that the problem for us with Christmas is we don't go back to the beginning of the story. That we don't consider why Christmas had to happen. Why did Jesus Christ have to come to this earth? You know, the plot has changed. You know, we are at the climax, but we've forgotten the backstory of what has happened. So I want us to look at this plot and I want us to just think as we think of the beginning of time. And when we go to the beginning of time, we have to go right back to the book of Genesis. I just want to run through some steps as we consider just the beginning. God created the world and everything in it. He created the first man and woman in Adam and Eve. And he set them up in paradise in the Garden of Eden. But then there's a major mix-up as we consider the whole plot, as we consider the serpent, Satan coming. And as God told him, I want you to not touch this one fruit. But Satan comes and, and uses crafty um, ways and tells he well, Jesus doesn't God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he doesn't want you to become like him and she eats the fruit and then we see what happens sin has entered the world paradise is finished you know they notice things that they never noticed before that is where things started but then things start to go downhill fast there's murder a flood a whole mess at Babel then Abraham comes on the scene Abraham is God's chosen person. Through Abraham and his future children, God said he's going to do something new and amazing in a new land. But then Abraham has many sons, and their descendants end up in slavery in Egypt. Then God sends Moses to get his people out of there. Then there are a bunch of plagues and miracles we consider the part of the Red Sea. Food raining down from the sky. After 40 years of wandering, God's people finally enter the land and God promised them. But again, God's people are not happy. They're not excited. They're not just, oh, everything is great. No, they're still not happy. They start to follow the ways of their sin and idol worshiping. So God sends some people we call judges to rescue them. And that doesn't work. God's people are still sinning, but God is faithful. So he moves to plan B. God sends kings to rule and keep them in line, and they don't work either. He sends prophets, neither do they work. So God's chosen people find themselves swept up in adultery, exiled again, taken captive by another nation, and waiting for God to rescue them again. And so they wait, and they keep waiting, and they wait some more. For 400 years, God's people wait. For 400 years, there are no judges, no kings, no prophet. No word from God whatsoever. There is just silence and waiting. Nothing is happening. God has said nothing in 400 years. But then, as we consider and we get to the point of the Christmas story and we get to the point of, as we consider this whole reason of why the Christmas story needs not to be just about Mary and Joseph and and baby Jesus, as we consider... We have to remember the plot. We have to remember where we were. As we consider the nation of Israel and what they went through, we now reach the climax. As we consider Christmas to get us excited and why the story that we read, and, and not just the story but the truth of God's Word, should change our whole perspective. But again, the problem with Christmas is we just want to start at the climax and don't, don't remember where we have come from. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 to 23. And it says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After Mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not Mm -hmm. wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated god with us. Again, we after four hundred years of silence, after four hundred years of waiting, God decided it was time to come and save his people. So he moved. And he moved in one of the most unlikely ways that we could even imagine. He moved in a in a virgin birth. He moved in a woman who was young, who you know was chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus. When we consider this story and we consider the truth of God's word, we need to remember as we look at Christmas that we need to go back to the beginning because we need to see where we were and what God has done in us and how he came to this earth as a lowly babe in a manger. As we consider being, you know, as Mary has been engaged to Joseph, as we see this would, this would mean so much for the world. This would be a great movie to think about. A virgin having a baby. And the only thing that I could say about this is God. God had a purpose. And God had a reason. And God had a reason. And God had planned this from the beginning. As we see, as we talked about, as we saw how the prophets, the prophets had, they already told them that this would happen. So this should come no surprise. But again, the people did not listen. And here it is. It is time. It is time for this babe to be born. A time for the silence to end. A time for us to really consider what Christmas is all about. We will pick up next time as we consider the truth of God's word. And I hope that as we consider the Christmas season, that we would remember where we have come from. But as we pick up next week, we will understand why Jesus Christ came. Sit back, listen up for
0: a short Christmas devotional we'd like to share with you.
1: I have a Christmas devotional I'd like to share with you this morning. It's called Three Trees at Christmas. It's written by Dr. Larry Waters, who is Associate Professor of Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. A tree planted by the water, Jeremiah 17, verse 8. Three trees at Christmas. The Christmas tree is often the center of focus during the holidays. We decorate it, place presents under it, and admire its many lights and ornaments. Yet, how often do we associate the tree with the real meaning of Christmas? Consider three examples of trees from the scriptures that might help us to focus on the real reason for the incarnation. First, the salvation tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Jesus died for the sins of humanity so that the one who trusts in him would be made righteous. Number two, the scorched tree. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. A person trusting anyone or anything except Christ is pictured as a worthless, barren tree without nourishment. Dried up. Number three, the sanctified tree. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah chapter 17. Verses 7 and 8. This tree is the believer who is set apart in Christ, producing spiritual, nourishing fruit. This Christmas, as you enjoy decorating the tree and focusing on its beauty, consider these three trees nestled in its shadow the salvation tree, which is a tree of beauty and redemption and justification the scorched tree, which is a dry, dead of life without Christ tree, and the sanctified tree, a life that puts Christ at the center of Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful time of the year and for this devotional reminder that there are different kinds of trees that we can be reminded of when we look at our own Christmas trees. Lord, we would desire that we would be salvation trees because of knowing the beauty of your redemption and justification in Christ. Lord, help us not to be scorched trees that reject Jesus and are dry and dead of life without him. Lord, help us to be sanctified trees, trees that are lives, that are put under the lordship of Jesus Christ, not only at Christmas, but all the year round. Thank you, Lord, that you will help us in these regards, for we trust you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
0: It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com That's eocradio at gmail.com Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Laney's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997 and once again, Here is Pastor Robert
1: Elias. Romans 6 verse 19, the question is, what does it mean to be sanctified and how is this accomplished? The word hagiadzo, sanctified, means to set apart. Christians are to set apart themselves from the unbelieving world through the regenerating faith in Christ. There are three aspects to sanctification. Positional sanctification occurs for all believers at the time of their salvation. They become saints positionally through faith in Christ. See 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 and verse 30. Final sanctification will take place when we see Jesus and are made to be like him. 1 John 3 verse 2. Experiential sanctification is that process of conforming their personal experience to their position as saints in Christ, Romans six nineteen and 22. It is this aspect of sanctification that is the subject of Paul's exhortations in Romans chapters 6 through 8. Paul explains that sanctification is based on identification with Christ and his death, verse 3. Believers must count on their being dead to sin, verse 11. The process of sanctification involves conforming to Christ by refusing to yield to sin and yielding instead to God, verses 12 and 13. Such yielding cannot be accomplished by the strength of the human will, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. In summary, the believer is sanctified as he or she yields to God's will and conforms to God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. From a practical point of view, here are some steps that believers may take to help bring their daily lives in line with their position as saints in Christ. 1. Apprehend every evil thought. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. 2. Evaluate your thoughts by Philippians four, verse eight. Number three, remember who you are. Ephesians chapters one and two, compared with Second Peter, chapter one, verses five through nine. Four. Recognize God's will, 1 Thessalonians four verse three. Five. Present yourself to God, Romans six, verse 13. Six. Yield to God's will. Romans 12, verses one and two. Seven. Resist the devil, James four, verse seven. Eight. Take the way of escape. First Corinthians 10, verse 13, and Second 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Nine. Draw near to God. James 4, verse eight, 10. Be filled with the word of God. John 17, verse 17. 11. Continue in an attitude of prayer. Colossians 4, verse 2. 12. Share in Christian community. Acts 4, verse 42. 13. Sing Christian hymns. Listen to Christian music. Ephesians 5, verse 19. 14. Think wholesome thoughts. Philippians 4, verse 8. 15. Guard your eyes from evil. Psalm 119, verse 37. 16. Avoid enticing opportunities. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 25. And last, 17, be accountable to a spiritual friend. James 5, verse 16. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio
0: ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at EOCradio at gmail.com That's EOCradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684 Nassau, Bahamas. And remember... Everyone needs a savior.